Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And you are listening to the WFM podcast. My name is Andre, and I will be your host for today. Joining me today, a very old friend, uh, Marie Dix, VP of Client Success at SP Data Digital. She's a senior leader um, that will share a journey that start, actually started with workforce management and how important WFM was in shaping the way Marie operates today. We'll also speak about culture and how influential culture is in your ability to get things done. Okay, Marie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to finally speak with you again. It's been like almost eight years since the last time we spoke, so it's always good to reconnect with an old friend. Um, to start us off, I would love to for you to introduce yourself, just give us like a, an overview of what you are doing. I mean, you have been working in this, in this industry, like you said before, uh, shy of 20 years, so it's been a, a long journey. Um, tell us a bit who you are and what you have been doing. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I honest, um, it, this, it's, it's a real pleasure, first of all, to be able to talk to you again. I feel sad that it's been eight years. It doesn't feel like it, though. Um, but really, honestly, um, you know, as you said, my name is Marie Dix. I'm uh, currently the Vice President of Client Success at S&P Data Digital. Uh, it is a North American company that services multiple different industries, um, anything from uh, technical support to even government support, health support, even uh, during COVID. Um, I own uh, the client success portion of the business, which is all of our client relationships. Um, I have a team of directors that are an amazing group of people that work closely one-on-one -on -one with a set of clients, but we're also focused on growth and really looking at opportunities within our current businesses that we can grow uh, both our clients' revenue base as well as ours. So it's a super exciting job. I've been with S&P for uh, just shy of four years. And um, I started out as a director of client success, went into an AVP role with operations, totally left client success and went into ops, and then uh, came back into client success as VP. So uh, they've really uh, kind of fostered me in, uh, took, took a hold and, and have been leading my career uh, in this trajectory, which I'm really happy about. I'm super happy where I am. Yeah, I mean, it's that change between ops and client manager, it's always fun because the ch <laughs> you are in the end, you are trying to do the same job, the same goal, but it's a total different conversation between the two sides. <laughs> 100%. I think that, you know, and one thing, I think I remember even talking to you about this back in the day when we worked together. Um, you know, my career started actually, like besides being on the phones, like besides talking to the frontline customer, um, my first off the phone job was in WFM. And I was a RTA and I remember dreaming it and feeling there couldn't be more stress than <laughs> what I'm feeling <laughs> right now, managing service levels and occupancy and trying to find that balance. Um, it's crazy how that's changed, but I don't forget a minute of it. I don't forget a single second of thinking about it like a, 
like a video game. Okay, so I need to hit on this client an 80% service level within 30 seconds, but I need to maintain an 80% occupancy. And I have to do this by and skill switches and all that stuff. Like it was crazy to make that all make sense and execute on that. And now to think about that and the days that that used to make me stressed <laughs> out, I think it helps me do my job today. It's much, it makes things much easier. You, you have oh, to deal course. with the stress of trying to managing it. So speaking about it, it's much easier, right? Yes. And you know, it's all different. It's been really cool because one of the things that I've noticed is that when you've had your hands in each piece of the organization, it's almost like you can speak their language. So for example, if I talk today mm -hmm. to my counterpart in WFM, um, and he's talking about what uh, driving KPIs are, what he needs to focus on, what's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I can try to make sense into how that fits into the things that I need them to support us through, right? So um, I don't know if I, if I didn't have that experience, if I would just probably, it would probably adjust my perspective. And I would, I would think, well, um, you know, he's just looking at himself. He's not thinking of my perspective, but mm. I've sat in those shoes. I remember what it was like. I understand what's driving the decisions he's making. There's got to be somewhere for us to meet in the middle. Yeah, it gives, gives a totally different perspective. And, and in, in yeah. a nutshell, you just kind of like you are a success story of someone that started the career within this WFM uh, uh, scope and industry, So, which is amazing to see uh, how, how someone can evolve from there. Um, just... To, to touch a bit on that, and, and because one, you started there, two, you worked with loads of different teams within the space. So if you had to kind of like describe like what is the best that workforce management can do for you um, in your current job or in your on the operations perspective, how would you kind of summarize that? Well, <laughs> that's a good, a great question, challenging question, because I mean, Ultimately, it is in um, understanding both the revenue and efficiency needs from the client, so internal and external stakeholder size, right? I find that with the way that it works best, the best partnerships I've ever built between WFM and ops when I was in ops or in client success, being in client success, has always been that they know what success looks like on paper. If my workforce team knows what success looks like, they can help me get there. So if they understand what drives revenue, what drives efficiencies uh, from an agent level, what matters most, right? Because what matters for this client might be average handle time. But what matters for this one might be the fact that we have three concurrent chats happening at the same time. And what matters for this guy is that I hit a bill to pay of a certain percentage. And if the team that I'm working with understands the priorities and the drives of the internal and external stakeholders in that piece of business, they, I can set them up for success. Kind of like and the extension of your own eyes within the operation, right? Exactly. That's the only way that it works, right? Because somebody needs to know that they can, you know, ring when and that they can ring the alarm when they need to, right? If we are, are running into a dangerous scenario and building that partnership and making sure that that team understands, you know, the efficiencies that need to be managed and how we can work together to make that happen. I think that's really what kind of what that looks like from a, a WFM, what's, what's mm -hmm. key and most important. And I've always been open to 
also, especially in client success, to bring WFM to the table whenever we talk to the client. Not that they can reach out to them individually and bog down their workload, but more so that they understand who's in their corner. So the client gets an opportunity to express, you know, this is what's really important to me. Maybe the skilling, um, do we have the capabilities? For example, I have one client I'm working with now, they're really trying to look at um, a skilling based on performance, right? So uh, they wanna know what that, what does that look like? How will that impact um, how volume is dispersed among the contact center or the different cues within the contact center? How does that look? And only with workforce partnering with us on that and being part of the conversation would they really actually understand what we need to accomplish. So um, I hope that kind of answers your question totally. in a roundabout way. Totally. Answer that you kind of triggered me a next question, which is, I have to say, I worked with you before, so no, 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 no secrets here. And, and I think I totally feel what you said about getting WFM involved as part of the conversation because that helps a lot. Um, I wanted to like ask is, is there any kind of like story or any experience you have where um, that was critical uh, critical to solve any problem or to address? You mentioned kind of briefly that on the skills part. But like, is there any story that you could share on how that was important to, to a project or an initiative that was undergone? Yeah, there's, there's so many examples of, of how that's been. And, you know, I think in the client that we worked with, um, uh, you and I, when we worked together, uh, we had significant challenges launching that, and especially with multiple different lines of business within five different, like, or four different languages, and trying to balance how we were going to do that with a very intense uh, client relationship that would literally stand on the production floor, fold their arms and stare up at the monitors in the queue. Everything going okay? <laughs> <laughs> And watching how and bringing you to the table for those dialogues saved that partnership because they, they needed someone else, a different voice to understand why what they were seeing didn't make sense. So when they looked at that queue and it was on fire to them, so you'd have a service line of business with um, you know crazy wait times, a service level in the single digits versus a sales team that had low occupancy, underutilized, and couldn't understand why if I have, I'm looking at 25 people and 15 of them are talking furiously and 10 of them are twiddling their thumbs. What, this doesn't make any sense. Nobody has a sense of urgency. Um, the fact that I, I could and felt comfortable bringing you to the table to sit with them and explain, take them through the cues. And we built an action register, which, you know, I still refer to sometimes as, as, a, as a resource when I have workforce challenges um, and I need to partner with my, my current team. I think that was super helpful and a great example of how partnering with WFM and bringing you to the table to explain it and understand because I think one big gap that a lot of people don't understand is, especially when you're dealing with these partnerships, is not everyone understands the tools that they're working with. The telephony tools, the, the programs that they're dealing with are how they function. So in theory, they'll say, well, everybody should be able to handle this and do this, but that may not be how the tool works. You may not be able to- between multiple exactly. tools as they add more vendors in the mix and et cetera. 
Exactly. Right. And you're, you're integrating contact types, you're integrating different languages to the skills. You've got a whole different, a whole different spectrum of complications that you're putting in there. And it's not as simple as the person who's standing back and at an executive level and just looking and seeing red and it not making sense Mm -hmm. when they don't understand how the tool works. They're not going to understand what roadblocks we need to overcome in order to get it to that steady state and nice workflow, especially when you're in, in launch, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, critical stages. In the beginning. Exactly. Um, and, and when you're able to bring, to bring WFM to the table and even demonstrate, like show the screen, show how the skill set is. I don't know how many times we've, we'd sent screenshots. We demonstrated how we had the prioritization set up. Um, just to give that level of confidence to a nervous and you know under pressure client that we're doing everything we can to service their frontline as best as mm-hmm. we can in the limitations that we had. Yeah, it's, it's like we are trying to show that we are an extension of your own company because in the end of the day, what we are trying to do is to help you getting successful. So exactly, and it's a win-win, right? Our yeah. goals are the same, it's just our, our paths are a bit different. Um, and I think the second biggest example had to have been how we partnered uh, where I am currently with S&P Data uh, and how Workforce partnered with our clients when the pandemic hit and we needed to deploy thousands of people to work from home. Scary and how times. we were gonna monitor that and how were we even, you know, we went from an age of walkie talkies on the production floor with WFM RTAs going, so-and-so's in rap for this long a time, go check on them, to they're sitting in their house. How do I know what they're doing? Yeah. It, it, this in the span of like 20 years, it's scary just to people that to were think? used to work at that time looking to now is like, how the hell did they manage to do that? <laughs> well, that's, it, you know, and it's a crazy thought process of the things that had to roll out in a short period of time mm-hmm. to make this work. And, you know, we were able to, like, do some of these deployments in, like, record time. And, like, you're watching associates walk in and take the equipment. Like, take your, see you later, <laughs> go into the elevator with the, my computer. <laughs> I can imagine the security guys, it seemed like, one, it was like, hey, you cannot go. It's like, then see, like, two, three, four, five. It's like, okay, maybe this is a new uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> some, something's happening. Something's yeah, happening and, here. And trying to get um, your shared services teams, right? Like, like workforce management, um, you know, like QA and training and all these uh, support teams all working together in a new virtual world and still maintaining the level of security, the level of interaction, the level of monitoring, right? At base level WFM to complex, where we're talking about automated reports, where we need visibility, where we're talking about uh, managing your, your shrink and your, your finances, uh, right? The revenue both from the client revenue, how much are they benefiting from our partnership to, you know, your, your own revenue is how much are we, are we able to support them? Yeah, clear. Another, just to flip sides here uh, and moving slightly back on your early days as kind of a WFM RTA, I just thought, wondering like, is there any skill that you learned? You kind of mentioned that stressful part about like being more attentive to what's happening, uh, but is there any specific skill that you built up that you still use today? Yeah, um, you know, um, it was all about when I went into WFM and I started my career there, um, they had a very unique approach to the business and 
at that time, WFM was accountable to KPIs, right? So if service level was missed for a specific client, the first person you asked was WFM, not operations. It was, what did you do to like, what actions were taken? The ability to be able to think on the fly and make these decisions and trust your instincts was something I had to develop, right? Because this was a new territory for me. I woke up and saw the dashboard in the middle of the night and thought, oh my God, am I missing Someone something? Someone that's up over the rest. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that that capability of, of having to know where to look, what indicators do I have to look that tells me what is impacting? For example, reading an intraday report and being able to ascertain what the rest of my day is going to look like how I'm going to end, if I mathematically can even hit service level for that day, if by making a certain percentage of reduction in AHT, what virtual FTE is that going to gain me to this day, even in my current role, I still will do that math. Yeah, it's still it's super going. important basic math that I think everyone, even for everyone that is listening, that is even starting. I think many times, and now today, most of the tools kind of give you that based on the level of integration you have, but it, it's so important if you're able to do that some very quickly. It's like a very basic arithmetic, but it changes completely your game because you can read things much faster and make decisions much faster. Yeah, I totally, totally agree and, and recognize myself on that as well. Exactly. And that's why I think it's reading and interpreting something from a report, even from, you know, handling um, the impact on attendance and attrition and being able to determine what, where action plans need to be placed and how to get that from a report, why it's telling me that, or what, uh, like even volume fluctuations throughout the day um, would impact when to be in, in an AHOD or like an all hands on deck process. These tools that I learned in my, in the early parts of my career, I like to this day, I'll still, and luckily I make, I'm very public about the fact that I started in WFM. I love that because I think if anybody has that path and wants to get really far in their career, they have to take a stint in WFM because it's the way to understand your business from a numbers perspective. Know what it means in the background because then I'm educated for that part. Everyone knows buzzwords on the, on the quartile analysis, but where does that quartile evaluation come from? Who builds that for you? And where are those numbers, right? Yeah, everyone and, somehow is used to get to a certain level of degree on an analysis, but uh, it's just taking the, 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 and I think it's a good job that the WFM professionals do, which is you are trying to enable the decision-making process. So as easy as is it to read, the better. Like for decision-makers, it's like, oh, I just have to look at the numbers, see if they are good or bad, and it's done. Uh, but yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I totally agree. Yeah. And I think like even to this day, like in a works vice versa, the um, the director I work with for WFM to this day spent a few years as an operations manager. And I think that that makes him, it gives him an edge. It gives him an edge in his WFM background because he's very analytical to when he works in partnership with operations and he hears certain things, he's able to ascertain and help them in his skill set to set them up for success. And I'm lucky enough to work in an environment that nobody's like, everybody's encouraged to kind of like drive in the lane that if wherever they need, like if I feel that I need to bring in WFM for something, and even if it might be an operational deliverable that I need that level of support and analysis, that's not in my job description, that doesn't exist. 
um, your knowledge, your background brings us a level of support that I need to be successful. So we make it work. Yeah. Um, and I, I do that even with my background for even operationally in client success from WFM, from quality to training. It's, it's super good to hear uh, that from that perspective, because I think it, for everyone that is listening, I think it, it's how important, because again, you are here representing the number one persona of a stakeholder that the WFM professionals have. And it's like so important to hear that perspective. I think it, it helps a lot. Just to kind of like out of curiosity, just to change more a bit on the WFM side, because I think it's important for people to know you better. So you, if I'm correct, uh, and I might be wrong, so we met not in Canada because you are based in Canada. I, uh, and you worked in Canada your entire career, like even before and after, right? Or did you have any experience outside? So I've spent a good period of time over in offshore, so in the Philippines and in Manila, but that was in partnership with where I was working. So we had a shared service and we actually had, I had worked in one of the companies I worked with, we actually brought on a company uh, in the Philippines and in India. And so I spent a good portion of time there to help onboard, to help launch, to help uh, educate. And I was super lucky to be able to spend that time and learn how they do it differently, even how they offshore. Um, that's, that's important because my next question is, if I recall correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you were some, someone that really liked to, loved to travel. I remember back in the day in the office, oh, I'm going to do like a weekend there or out there. Like any, anything you miss from Portugal in this specific case, because we, we worked there together. So is there anything you miss? Oh boy, do I miss Portugal. I, to this day, still stay. Um, I don't regret that I came back to Canada. My dad got sick and subsequently passed away a few years later. So had I not come back, I would have lost a few years I got to spend with him. But I miss the, the multicultural facet that I worked in there and the uh, ease of being able to kind of go anywhere. I spend a lot of time still traveling here. Even during COVID, I ended up going to one of our uh, partner sites, like one of our sites in uh, the East Coast of Canada in Newfoundland. And I spent a while there. I was there um, and I had never even been to that part of Canada. And for anybody geographically challenged, Canada is huge. It's yeah. the same flight for me to go to Portugal it is for me to go to the other part of my own country. So, <laughs> um, and it was a completely different uh, experience. And I still travel to the U.S. a lot to our partner sites that are there. Um, I absolutely adore that travel and the versatility that now this remote world brings us is crazy. Um, but it also has you stay put a bit more than I used to. Uh, I probably don't travel at the frequency that I that I would have in before. I used to spend, I mean, one of the and one of the places I worked with, I probably was more away than I was home. Yeah, your home was just to go back and change clothes yeah. and repack again to fly again. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> and still, I mean, I just got back uh, from, from one trip, but I was able to drive there and I got to make some stops. And it's quite nice to jump into a site and everybody remembers the last time you were there and, and that. But um, it was a very unique experience. And I still, to this day, and I, I joke around because I do brag about the time I spent in Portugal and how much I loved what I did and the people I met and, and how it impacted my life and how I do my job today. Um, but also I still show like our Christmas party videos, <laughs> our, like the summer party videos. <laughs> and like, this is a whole different culture. It was a whole different experience. 
but I used to pride and I still do pride myself on the fact that in my career, I not only was able to spend time in almost every department with the exception of finance, boring, <laughs> um, but it, with the exception of finance in every training quality uh, ops, WFM, you know, um, I used to joke around that I, I would um, moonlight as IT and whenever I, I attempted <laughs> to fix anything. Um, but I was able to also have an, a nearshore, um, onshore, offshore experience. So when I went to Portugal, that was my very first European contact center experience. I had done um, the offshore, the uh, Philippines and India component and spent but like months, six months at a time in centers out there. And I'd done North America where we did um, and even a small stint in South America, but I'd never done Europe until I'd gone to Portugal and had that experience. And it was, there were differences a thousand percent on how yeah. even the work ethic and how everyone worked together. I was going to ask about that because like you literally have the all the corners of the world you have like sneak peek of experience like is there any massive difference culturally that you see like for instance like you were mentioning on the word ethic uh, but is there anything like you feel like that, that you could share as an example of how different things are between these locations i remember it's actually in portugal and i remember being brought in by shervin and he came into my office and he's like can i talk to you about something and i said sure he says you're intense <laughs> you are hyper and loud and sometimes you're stressing people out <laughs> so what i did notice is that um the expectation i find in north america is that a sense of urgency is visible tangible you can yeah. see it and you can, you can feel, feel it. it and if yeah. yeah and if you remember like there's a buzz there's a buzz on the floor and our client that we were working with at that time Every time he had my one-on-one -on -one with me, he's like, I don't feel the sense of urgency on your floor. Right. And it was, but it was cultural. It was yeah. very cultural. They didn't need to, they were successful in being the way that they were, but it was very hard for them to take this loud <laughs> Canadian <laughs> girl <laughs> going on the floor, like clapping their hands and screaming, like, come on, everybody. And they're like, why is she so loud? <laughs> What's going on? Like, why is she so I, hyper? Is something on fire? <laughs> that, I think that's one of the things I kind of enjoyed. It's like that level of energy, it's kind of helps a lot to, even when the days are not going necessarily that good, it helps a lot to kind of like, okay, refocus, like they're like, it's always like a, a laugh or a smile to, to have in the end of the day. I think that, that for me personally was very important. So, uh, but I think what that taught me a lot in my career was that that's not the only way to tell that something is good is yeah. somebody is paying attention is by that. Right. So it made me step back and say, hold on a second. You know, just because they're not at the same like energy or walking at the same pace that I'm walking and not, you know, doing that doesn't mean that it, it's it's not as important as it is to me. Yeah. And it, it, it really kind of humbled me to that fact to pay attention to, you know, um, how everyone handles everything a little bit different. And there are always a cultural component to that, right? You have those conversations where people talk about um, the differences between North America and Europe. And you'll say, most people will say, in Europe, you work to live. In North America, you live to work. 
right? And you see that. I felt it in like before coming to Portugal. I was I spent uh, besides my career and time in Canada, I spent five years in Mallorca living there in Spain, where they close shops in the middle of the day to have a nap <laughs> for your siesta. <laughs> even even no for me, it's weird. But, and I'm Portuguese. Right? I'm a neighbor, but yeah, yeah I get your point. <laughs> and and you know. It's different and just as successful to work to live. Yeah. And I love that, that some, uh, somehow in a lot of places now, they're adopting that mentality, right? Portugal was one of the first places to make it um, a law to not be contacted outside of your hours of operations. Yeah. Guess what other country decided to make that a law, right? <laughs> Canada. Here we are. Oh, the Portuguese have a smart idea. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, and and I love that. I love that they're, they're, some of those best practices are being shared vice versa. Yeah. And it helped. I think it's you shared a very interesting perspective on how cultural is important. And I think those perspectives help a lot to kind of like, even to understand the context on the other side, uh, it, it, that's that's definitely good to, to hear. And I wanted to, to ask, so throughout your journey, um, is there anyone or any kind of like, a, could be a person, could be kind of like something that happened that really stood with you until today um, and helped kind of shape who you are? Yeah, I have so many examples of different um, people and experiences that impacted um, impacted my life. One of the big things that, like, contact centers and this industry that we work in isn't something that most people sit there in high school and go, "That's where I'm going to work." Mm -hmm. Right? I'm I'm just going to. Uh, that's my dream, right? Mm -hmm. But I've built a life and support a family around it. And I'm so proud of, of the things I've accomplished and what I've done and the places I've been and the things, the, the people I've met. I mean, look at us across an ocean here, here talking like this today. Uh, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. When I grew up, I wanted to be like five different things that every kid wants to be, right? Like a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or a police officer or something like that. And I get the fulfillment in my career of a lot of those things, I get to help people in some way, shape or form every single day. If it's even by listening to someone who's having a tough day to um, bringing on a client that's going to bring hundreds of jobs to an area that really needed an influx of job security, or even, uh, you know, calling someone um, and, and giving them a lead on something that's, that's huge. But I can recall, and I always bring it down to this one moment in my career, at the very beginning. And I was um, working as a team leader, team manager at the time. I had already done my stint for eight months in WFM. My leader at the time, he was an amazing personality, still talk to him to this day, probably one of uh, my very first influential individuals in my life. Um, he actually was the one that took me out of the WFM and, and suggested that I move into operations and said, your personality tells me that you should be in with people. But knowing that you're in operations with what you brought, what you've learned in WFM, I feel like I'd have like a, 
um, you know, somebody who can, who understands what's important to WFM out in operations and can help us bridge the gap between WFM and, and ops, which you see in different organizations with different clients occur regularly, that ops versus WFM rather than ops with WFM. And that and is it's so important. I, sorry to interrupt right? you, because that, that is probably the magical world that, that word that changes a lot of the perspective is like, it's not we and them. It's like we are us. one. So if exactly. we us get this together, we win together. So that that's super important. Yeah, and I that's what he it. thought. He's like, this is this is a perfect thing because you'll be in there with operations and able to understand why we're doing what what decisions we're making and why, and help people drive that decision on the front line. So I was a. Uh, you know, and I, I loved to learn more and understand the whys behind it. I was very ambitious and got a taste of growth with my first jump into WFM and then becoming a backup manager there and now in operations. And we had a client that was in trouble. They were flying in, not for great news, but to have a challenging discussion. And at that time, the operations managers, you know, they were struggling and they needed somebody to present to the client that didn't have that kind of background that the OMs had of them already having some challenging discussions. They needed a different face to present what had happened and what we were going to do to the client. So with very little notice, um, my former boss went to our uh, like on-site executive teams and said, Marie will do it. Marie will present for us. And uh, at the right? day, the day before, <laughs> the day before, at 9 p.m., I got the final draft of the presentation that started at 8 a.m. the next day. And that moment where, you know, uh, I had to take in the late night and the no sleep and work and you know, dress the part and understand how, uh, how I was going to present it and be natural and, and get over some of the nerves and the fear and stand in front of a client and, and convince them to continue their relationship and have faith in our success. And it would be my words and how I presented it and the confidence in which I spoke that would help them make that decision. And I had to get over any of my insecurities because more, more than that wrote on my success that day and that this was a career making moment yeah and that. uh he had powerful. faith in me without without like just working alongside me in a little fishbowl office we used to call it and said marie will do it and he saw something in me that i don't think i saw and then that's when everything kind of began yeah career defining moment amazing mm -hmm. amazing to hear Thanks, thanks for sharing. Kind of to wrap up things, uh, I have kind of two final questions, one more on the funny, funny side. Um, is there anything, so while we were here in Portugal, we, we worked together, but like we mentioned the cultural side, how different things were. Is there anything that you found super weird? Like things that were like, why do they do this in this country? Or Portugal or, or somewhere Like, can else? it be just a Portugal thing? It can be, you can go. It's about, you know what I thought it was weird and to this day I still talk about it. The eating these donuts on the beach. <laughs> Nobody believes me when I tell them, seriously, they just sell these donuts. They are not necessarily donuts. It's like they look exactly like a donut. We're yeah. a donut country. We, we don't <laughs> call it donuts. But yeah. I, I don't eat it, but it's like, it's a very traditional What's thing. What's it called you, again? Uh, Bola de Berlin. 
okay so i was trying to it's, so i don't know if the, there is even an english translation to that no because uh, andrea took me to the beach for the first time with her family and then she's like you have to eat this it's it just tastes delicious on the beach now i'll tell you she wasn't wrong it was delicious <laughs> for some reason it was so great and it was awesome every time i went to the beach i ate one but to this day, I explain to people, you want to know what happens when I was in the beach of Portugal? <laughs> they sell donuts. I'm like, have this cream-filled donut and <laughs> it's delicious. I thought, that's so weird. And you know what else I will tell you? People were shocked by uh, a commute. So when I lived there, I lived like my first apartment when I moved there was in downtown, right yeah. by like um, Marques de Pombal. Yeah. right there like right downtown i remember i remember that yeah. then i moved to sao pedro mm -hmm. by kishkais right so i was very close and everyone's like oh why'd you so far and i was like it's 30 minutes on a train like <laughs> yeah this is amazing they're like well oh, it's so long <laughs> but to me it was like that's not that's a dream here yeah 30 minutes on a train and then you just have to walk a few seconds yeah, people's that perception was, on community. Yeah, is really weird. yes, yeah, that was that. so different to me. Was that that just seemed like why'd you go so far away? Yeah, and, and I have to say that like being Portuguese, and I I know that feeling. So, in one of my travels a while back, I have two stories very similar. When I went to Brazil, and in São Paulo, I wanted to go to the airport, uh, and the, my plane was at like four p.m. something like that, and it was like ten a.m. So I was like, plenty of time. It's like a Without traffic, it's like a 35 minute drive, one hour maximum tops. And I was like, it started to rain. And guys were like, oh, you have to go. It's like, I have to go, why? It's like, with rain traffic in Sao Paulo is not easy. It's worse than the LA. And I was like, okay, I mean, I will trust, I don't know. I arrived 25 minutes before the plane departure. It was like crazy, 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 crazy. Traffic with rain. So wow. that one was my one of the worst experience in traffic I had. But That'd I be so terrifying. Standard. Imagine the commute there. It's like, oh, it's raining. So today is plus four hours. <laughs> That's nuts. I mean, I when I when I got the offer to for the job in Portugal, I watched one YouTube video that said the 10 best things and uh, no five best things and five worst things about living in Lisbon. They were right about both things. And one of them was how people drive. Like, I would joke that if I wasn't taking the train, I'd be like, oh, I'm taking the Formula One. Home. Formula One. <laughs> I take the Formula One. <laughs> I think we got used to that. Yeah. We got used to that, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Marie, to, to end, is there any question to myself? Any Anything you want to share before we um, close? I loved having this conversation with you. So thank you so much. It's, um, I think you can tell by how excited and hyper I get that I love what I do. And, and, yeah. um, and I'm very proud of the career path I took as well as, you know, how, where I've landed and where I am now. But most of all, I just um, appreciate that we've even at a very high level stayed connected and thank you so much for thinking of me for this and having this dialogue um you know i hope you got out of it what you really were hoping for and for we'd love to come back anytime it was a pleasure to have you I, I i mean like i said it's we need to avoid getting like another eight years on top of this one uh, yes please <laughs> please 
because I think it's like, like you said, your story is for me, it's like it brings a different perspective from someone that started in WFM as a stakeholder. You know exactly what to expect. You will also understand the other side and how important is the two sides combining together efforts. So it was perfect, I think, for us. And I really hope that the audience could connect with you uh, at the same level. Um, so, Marie, thank you really uh, so much for your time. And let's stay in touch, I think. And for the audience, please uh, follow us for, for more episodes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to WFM. This podcast is made and produced by André Leitão, Bilga Hentelun, Doug Carsten, Gonçalo Gomes, and Kim Paz. If you like this show, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues. Visit our website, wfm.com, to find more exclusive interviews and WFM content. See you next time. All rights reserved.